Welcome back to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw. We are sponsored by Filson and eFish and Forage Market. Today, we are going to talk about pressure canning. Pressure canning is a fundamental skill that you're going to want to know if you do a lot of gardening or if you are a junkie at the farmer's market or if you are trying to make some room in your freezer or even if you just want to make your own soup for a rainy Wednesday that is right there on your pantry. Our guest is Kathy Barrow. Kathy Barrow is one of the great preserving people out there. She has written any number of books about canning and pressure canning and preserving and that sort of thing. And so she is going to be a fantastic resource to ask about all things pressure canning to relieve you of the fear that your pressure canner is actually going to explode and destroy your kitchen. We get to that myth right away. So without further ado, let's talk to Kathy and cure your fear of pressure canning. Good morning, Kathy Barrow. Welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Uh, It has been a minute since we've talked, hasn't it? It has, but it's nice to hear your voice, Hank. It is. It's, it's, I don't know. I think I am still spending my time going through your, your very awesome book, uh, Mrs. Wheelbarrow's, um, God, what is it? It's, it's like Mrs. Wheelbarrow's complete guide to like preserving Practical the entire pantry. universe. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I wanted one resource where you could get like the good information on all kinds of canning. And that's what I, and you know, preserving, preserving meat, preserving dairy, pressure canning and boiling water bath canning. And that's not your latest book though, is it? No, my latest book is Bagel Schmears and a Nice Piece of Fish, which is a sort of uh, complete deli in a book. <laughs> As a guy who grew up in New Jersey with delis, you know, around every corner, uh, I appreciate yeah. that. My my thing growing up was a uh, was a Taylor ham egg and cheese sandwich in New Jersey. Oh yeah, well who doesn't love one of those? <laughs> a lot of people don't know about it. Like it's a it's kind of exclusive to New Jersey uh, and a little bit of the Philly area. And there's this you know the the ongoing debate over whether it's pork roll or Taylor ham. Of course. Uh, so your uh, Mrs. Wheelbarrow's practical pantry is probably the the source material that we're probably going to talk about much today. Uh, sure. And pressure canning is kind of the main focus because I I know I get questions about pressure canning quite a bit in the uh, hunting and fishing and foraging community. And I bet you it is one of your, one of the topics that people are most worried about. In, in Absolutely. Right? Yes. Yeah. It's very sciencey. And so uh, it makes people scared, but it, it shouldn't. It should make you respectful, but not scared. I, I think we, we both do charcuterie. And so that's, I have the same, same thoughts about dry cured meats is I like, don't, don't really be scared, but you know, you got to kind of do your homework. Yeah. I mean, I always say about charcuterie that people have done it for hundreds of years and, you know, did most of them didn't die, but still you want to be careful. I like them. Most of them didn't die. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You'll probably be all right. So respect, um, I think respect is really key when you start, you know, set out to preserve um, because most of the time we make things and then we want to share them. And so you want to share only the best products from your kitchen and not ones that might cause other people to get sick. For sure. Did you grow up pressure canning? 
I did not. I taught myself after I um, stepped sort of knee deep into thoughts of sustainable living and sort of being more uh, thoughtful about all the produce and products that were coming into the house. Did you grow up with any kind of preservation or canning at all? Or? Oh, yeah. My great-grandmother had um, a pretty substantial garden. And one of her sons, my great-uncle Arthur, had a five-acre garden. And he would just drop bushels of food off at her house. She was about 70 at the time. I was six. So I was sent to her house to do all the work. I snapped the beans. I held the strawberries. I stirred the jam. I filled the jars. I ran them up and down to the basement. This was my job for years. That's pretty cool. I did not grow grow up with much of a, a preservation. It, we, it, It's funny. I am unusual in the fact that I did grow up with a lot of knowledge of wild plants and, and fishing and such, but we didn't mm-hmm. do a lot of preservation other than freezing. Yeah, we did a lot of canning. I mean, some of it was to my uh, young brain, really gross, like brandied peaches. Those were just, you know, ugh, who would eat those? But now I think they're delicious. <laughs> For me, it, it was all about jam and pickles. I was, I was a kid who loved a pickle, and I could eat a whole jar of them. And you know, pickles, of course, being high acid, and and jams and jellies being high sugar. Those are the water bath canning things. And pressure canning is usually all about the low acid thing. Correct. Should I go into a little science right here? Absolutely. Okay. So when we preserve jams, jellies, and pickles, for the most part, what we're dealing with are uh, high acid, low pH products. And those can be preserved in boiling water, which means that you put the jar in the boiling water bath, which is 212 degrees, and the products inside that jar come to 212 degrees and it equalizes and that's what makes that lid seal like sucks down and everything is safe now if you have a low acid high ph food like beets for instance and you don't want to pickle them you need to bring them to 241 degrees to make them safe from pathogens. This is also true for meat or fish or legumes, dried beans, all of them, they need to come to 241 degrees. You cannot achieve that with a jar in boiling water because the water will never go above 212 degrees. You can only do it when steam is created under pressure. And that's what pressure canning does is bring the temperature of the product within the jar to 241 degrees. So I, I know botulism is, botulism is the main enemy here, but are there other pathogens that require uh, heating beyond 212? You know, I, th- I think that there's a whole big list of them, but botulism is the one that primarily exists within a jar. Because it's anaerobic, mm-hmm. right? Correct. What's got you into pressure canning? I mean, because you said you started it you know, as an adult, as did I. But for me, uh, my beginnings for it was I ran out of freezer space for the deer and ducks and, <laughs> and wild pigs and things. So I'm like, hmm, 
I think I'm going to need to store these at room temperature. And then I kind of went down the rabbit hole. So what, what started it for you? Um, my very first experience with pressure canning came um, as a gift. A woman I knew who was a very uh, big preserver gave me a jar of her home canned tuna in olive oil. And I had never experienced anything like this outside of European jars of tuna, which at the time were not as uh, easy to find as they are now. And I just went kind of bonkers and said, I must figure out how to do this. So that got me there. And what kept me there was the opportunity to keep uh, my own homemade soups, which we live on in the winter, on the shelf in jars as though I was, you know, Campbell's or Progresso, that it was mine. It's funny. We we just, you, yes, that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't really start pressure canning until I moved to California in 04. And like you, um, I believe the first, I'm trying to think of the, the first product that I ever ate that was home pressure canned. I'm pretty sure it was some some Oregon canned albacore. Albacore, albacore. yeah. Because that's a that's a serious tradition in, in the Pacific Northwest is to home can both salmon and albacore. And that's right. Yeah, I mean, so anybody out there, if you're not familiar with those uh, Spanish and Italian canned tuna, they're like a million dollars a jar. and Or 20, just, one or the other. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but 20 yes. for like a, a like a... Uh, starkest size can it's like a hundred for for the quart jars (laughs) and it's crazy it's you look at it like it's just tuna right and then you eat a pressure canned albacore that that somebody's sister made in in you know coos bay and with costco olive oil and it's like wow where have you been all my life so there's this there's this ability to make products at home with pressure canning that really really special and i and i do the same thing the soups that i pressure can every year uh i do chili verde and i do um i do canned spaghetti sauce like you know like a regular red sauce with meat yeah and occasionally i'll do my my own chili and those are kind of my staples because if i'm really super tired on a wednesday or whatever and i'm like you know you can just open a jar and there you go that's right uh, many, many years ago, um, I was dating a guy when I was living in Colorado, and his mother introduced me to pressure canned um, spaghetti sauce that she made with the elk that they caught. Mm. And I-, I chased that flavor for years, not having any elk. And I, I it was really spectacular, ground um, meat, and it was, yeah, it was uh, memorable. It's been, it's been a few decades, but I can still bring it up in my head. I, yeah, I, I, I don't know how much, how many I eat. I make maybe three gallons, four gallons of it every year. I should, I, next time mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm out East, I'll bring you a jar. Fabulous. I'll trade you for something in mind. <laughs> Perfect. Stock is the other one that I think I do. I think yes. I, I, in fact, after we get off this, this episode, I have to pressure can a bunch of duck stock. Um, you know, as soon as I get off, the, <laughs> get off the get off yes. the call because in the in the hunting season, you know, when you have dead things, dead things have bones, and then bones equal stock, and then stock needs to be pressure canned. So there you go. 
Yes. And in the summer, I can a ton of corn stock. Because oh, with a, with a, where you, you know, some of the ears? With cobs. Yeah. The cobs. Yeah. The cobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And because we're a mostly vegetarian household, that comes in really handy for me and just, you know, building a little bit of flavor into all sorts of dishes. That's a really cool idea. I mean, I've made corn cob stock before, but I've never thought to, to uh, pressure can it. Mushroom mm-hmm. stock, I do. Yeah. Yeah. That's Mushroom great stock, stuff, well, I guess, it? would be your, your beef stock if you're mostly vegetarian. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, and that is Filson. Anybody who knows me knows that I wear Filson because Filson doesn't break. It isn't cheap, but neither should it be because it lasts forever. And one of the greatest things that I have of theirs is their Mackinac jacket. If you're not familiar with this jacket, it is a kind of like a, a heavy boiled wool overcoat that you can wear anywhere from kind of cold to really cold. And for over 120 years, Filson has been the most trusted outfitter for this kind of outdoor sport, trade, and adventure wear. And for almost as long, they've been making that Mackinac cruiser jacket. Originally patented way back in 1914, this jacket has become a legend in its own right, spanning generations as the hallmark of an outdoor coat. Made in the United States, its heavyweight, all-wool body, has classic snap-flat pockets and a full-width rear pocket that I use as a game vest when I go grouse hunting. This jacket has often been imitated and never been matched. They last forever. I've had mine for at least a decade, and I know some that have lasted for many decades. Shop at filson.com for the new limited edition green and black plaid Mackinac jacket. I have the forest green, but the green and black plaid sounds every bit as cool. Thanks to Filson for helping to sponsor this show. Back to it. So let's start with the first hurdle that people have when they pressure can, and that is the canner. Yeah. There's two types. There's a dial gauge and a weighted gauge. Now the dial gauge looks like any pressure gauge that you might see on, you know, your bicycle pump or anything like that. Um, And it, it pops on, uh, is that the way it works? No, it does not pop on. It's attached to the top and there's a rubber gasket. It is my least favorite of the pressure canners. I think that if you're going to do pressure canning, it's worth it to spend more and get a weighted gauge, which rattles with a very specific rattle that you can hear the whole time. And there's no rubber gasket to wear out. So those are your two options. It's quite big. They're usually 20, 23 quarts. They'll hold seven quart jars or 14 pint jars stacked. This is a great thing about pressure canners is the stacking business. Mm. Um, and uh, I guess that that's where I come down. I think the weighted gauge is just a much better option, easier to maintain the heat, easier to hear when it's going properly. Again, we that, are completely in agreement. <laughs> yeah. And I the reason that, that matters is that you cannot let the pressure dip below the requirement for canning. Like if you have a 35-minute period that the pressure has to be at 10 pounds and it dips to 8 pounds, you have to restart that entire 35-minute period right then. I did not so, know that. 
Nobody wants to do that, especially if it's like an hour and a half that something's processing. Really? You have to do fish. that? Because I, I, I have yeah. always just added the extra time on the end. Right. You have to restart your clock. Wow. That's, not ideal. I mean, that's no, not ideal at all because you've been sitting there staring the entire time and then you look away for 30 seconds and all hell breaks loose. But um, anyway, I, I really do believe the weighted one is a better value long-term. So there are various manufacturers, but what we're basically talking about is the Presto, which is the, the dial gauge. And it looks, you know, it looks, this is the, this is the pressure cooker or pressure canner that you might have in your mind's eye that looks like it's just really a bomb ready to go off. And yeah. nobody <laughs> likes them. I hate them. I don't know anybody who who swears by the Presto over the the weighted gauge primary manufacturer. And the one I have, probably the one you have too, is the All-American. And they're, All-American, yeah. Yeah, and they're made in Wisconsin and they're heavy, heavy aluminum. And I, I bought the, actually I bought the All-American not because of uh, of any prior recommendation, but because it looked safer. Yeah. Well, not having a, a rubber gasket is a huge benefit. Um, I've had mine probably 25 years. Um, I had a dial gauge for the few years that I was writing Mrs. Wheelbarrow, the book, because I wanted to try both, but mm. I couldn't wait. To get, I couldn't wait to get rid of it. I, I, there are probably other manufacturers out there, but if you're going to ask Probably both of us will probably both tell you to get the the spend the money all to American. get the all American, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, all right, so we now have everybody's like, Phew, okay, now I know which caner to get. <laughs> what are your top? What are your top? Oh my God, please don't ever do this things ah. when you are pressure canning because there are a number of them. You can't pressure can everything. Yes, do not pressure can dairy or grains or summer or winter squash or any cruciferous vegetables. Okay, explain. Um, summer and winter squashes have densities that can be very inconsistent. And winter squash, particularly like pumpkin, can get so thick that the temperature can't get all the way to the center. And if it does, sometimes it'll crack your jars. Um, bananas and avocados, um, uh, broccoli, cabbages, um, have the same density issues and also just don't can well. I mean, really canned bananas, not what you want. Trust me. Freeze them. <laughs> I, don't I agree, do it. But, but, don't but, do cabbage, it. <laughs> but cabbage shows up in soups sometimes. In soups, it's fine, but I, you can't really like quarter a cabbage and shove it in a jar and add a little water and salt and pressure can it and expect that it will be delicious when it comes out. Good point. Good point. I had, cause I can't even imagine why you would do that. Right. So you don't put your pasta, noodles, rice, or anything like that in your soup. Better to add it after you take it out of the jar. So, you know, like a chicken and rice. I know that people will say, but commercially I can buy chicken noodle soup, but those noodles will soak up all of the liquid in the jar as it sits there. And mm. then you'll have, then you'll have stew. It's just not, it's not the product that you want at the end. I have noticed that I do. Um, I occasionally with grains that take a million years to cook, like wheat, mm -hmm. 
wheat, uh, wheat berries or wheat berry. rye. Um, I'll actually mm-hmm. cook them three quarters of the way before they even go into the can because I know they're going to absorb liquid in the jar. And, right. and I'll always keep it like an extra finger or two fingers of liquid on top of the, of, I yeah. basically make it, make it wa- more watery so that when it comes out, it's a stew anyway, but the, the expansion I think is is an issue we should talk about with, with things. Uh, the way they expand in the jar. Yeah. Like beans, especially. Oh yeah. Dried beans. Um, uh, yeah. You don't want to fill that jar more than half full of dried beans and then the rest is water because they expand significantly. Yes. Significantly. Ask us how we know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. For the 15 jars that didn't seal because they all went over the top. Yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> so that, you know, let me make the mistakes for you. This is my, my role here. <laughs> so what happens if that happens? So I, this, is a, this is a question I get quite a bit is, okay, I pressure can something and the seal, it didn't seal. Now what? I, here's what I always say. So if one jar fails, pop it in the fridge and eat it within a week. If half of your jars fail, really go back and look at what you're doing because something somewhere wasn't right. Most of the time, newcomers to canning don't get the rim of the jar as clean and especially oil-free as it needs to be to make that seal really function. So I usually tell particularly new to canner, canning people to use white vinegar to clean that rim between the jar and the rubber gasket. And that's gonna make it squeaky clean with no oil and no residue and nothing that's going to get in the way. Yep, I do the same. I, I picked that one up because the spaghetti sauce that I that I can has a bit of oil in it and mm-hmm. that you got to watch out for. Oh, one drop of oil will um, mean that your seal doesn't work. So I was talking to Marissa McClellan. Uh, she's yeah. another excellent cannering person. And she's she, fantastic. She is. She mm-hmm. brought up a point that I had not thought about, but it was one of those things that in, when you say it, it makes perfect sense, but I just never thought about it, is that when you have a pressure canned thing that has oil in it, it has a much less of a shelf life than something that is, is oil free because the oil can go rancid. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, you would think that's not possible because it's supposed to be sealed, but there's a little bit of air in there. There's just enough that it can help that oil turn. So I don't keep things that have oil in them more than about eight, nine months from mm. one season. That said, I think I've, I've I, I know I've eaten two-year-old canned sturgeon and it was fine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I think that all of us who write books about preserving have personal rules and the rules that we publish. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Is that, that actually gets to a, to stay on the canned fish thing. I've actually yeah. seen a number of different timings for pressure canned fish. And I've seen anything from, oh, I think the shortest I've ever seen was 70 minutes. And the longest I've ever seen was like an hour and 40. Mm -hmm. And I'm not entirely sure what's the, what's going on there. Yeah. I know that I checked all of my times in the book 
with the National Center for Home Food Preservation, NCHFP. Um, you can find them online. Uh, they're a great resource. It's not the, uh, the most friendly writing. It's very cut and dry, but all the rules are there. So if, for instance, there's been some change in the way that fish is now canned to make it safe, you know, their rules are completely up to date. Now, I think I'm just checking my book here. I do 10 pounds of pressure for 100 minutes. Okay, so that's an hour and 40. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's and interesting. Half pints. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. So that it, people who don't pressure can a lot, uh, time really matters versus the size of your, your thing. And there are certain things that cannot be that cannot be pressure canned in quartz. Right. Fish is one of them. Fish is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so dairy, what happens to dairy if it's pressure canned? Um, I have to say, I don't know, but that it's one of the biggest things that the National Center for Home Food Preservation talks about. Like no dairy, never add it to your products. You know, doesn't work. Does that include butter? Uh, no, I think it's just milk, milk, cream, sour cream, the things that you might make a creamed soup, for instance, mm -hmm. not recommended, not recommended. I bet it, I bet first of all, 240 degrees isn't real kind to it. And second of all, <laughs> you've got the fat issue too. Right. And it would, I think it would curdle, it would separate, it would, you know, do all the bad things. You'd have little white pieces of butter fat floating around. Not, yeah. If for anybody who's would be broken not a chowder. attractive. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. My mom's chowder uh actually is fairly difficult to pull off because it's it's milk and evaporated milk instead of cream. Uh -huh. And if you let that chowder even get to a simmer, it breaks and we're all sad. Yeah. And I mean it's it's sad when it's one pot, but when it's twelve 12 pints it's really sad when you get started in pressure canning like i'm just saying if you're going to talk to the people out there like it, okay it's time yeah. to to get started and do this and and get into it and and do it right and you know preserve the things that we haven't been able to preserve before because this is it, it, pressure canning tends to be a 2.0 deal for quite a Correct. lot how would you tell I, them to get started well First of all, I call pressure canning graduate school in preserving. You know, you, you really should have your legs underneath you in basic boiling water canning and all of the steps that go along with that. Because that's going to, you're then going to become comfortable with the jars and the lids and getting them in and out and understanding siphoning and all of the aspects of canning. Because when you get into canning, of pressure canning, often you're dealing with more expensive ingredients. So get your sea legs in boiling water canning. Um, I think I also like to remember that canning is two steps. The first is cooking something and the second is canning it. So can something that you're comfortable cooking. If you make stock all the time, try canning that because you already know how to make the stock. Don't start learning to make something that you've never made like duck confit and decide that's what you're going to pressure can. I think that's my best advice. Have you ever canned duck confit? Oh, yeah. 
There's a recipe in my book. Really? You have to take the bones out. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. It really becomes velvety in the jar, just like the fish does. You know, it gets a very different quality. I, I mean, we, we hunt lots of ducks, so we have lots of duck legs. And right. A, that sounds like a really, so you do take the bones out and it, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a jar, like a, probably a half pint or a pint of, of duck meat in duck fat pressure canned, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. It's a, I usually use pints. I, I think I've done quarts too. Yeah. I've done quarts as well, but, but pints are better for me. I would think so. Yeah. It's also kind of mm-hmm. more of a, what you would use for a particular meal. Right. It's a really nice thing. The way that it um, changes in the jar is really remarkable. So walk me through that one. What's the pro- procedure for that one? Um, you make your confit and then you, uh, you know, get your rendered fat and um, pop the deboned hunk of duck into the jar and then cover with your duck fat and process it like another Uh, 100 minutes or it's um 90 minutes for pints and um 100 and uh 110 115 uh for quarts i'm gonna have to try and do that that's that's pretty cool because you know i mean immediately i'm thinking huh i could confit deer net or absolutely or I could confit pork or pheasant mm-hmm. legs or wild turkey legs. And <laughs> my mind is spinning. I did chicken gizzards once because I have a thing for gizzards. <laughs> and I do too. And I effing love, I, I do a thing yeah. called 24 hour gizzards where I, I corn them, you know, I, I cure yes. them like a, with a corned beef kind of thing. And then yeah. I put them in a crock pot for 24 hours and then you can squash them mm-hmm. with a fork. The idea yeah. of having a jar of that, yeah. Dude, that's awesome. <laughs> this is what happens when you, you know, when you start thinking about it, it's really fantastic pressure canning. Hey, everybody, if you are interested in buying my cookbooks, I have three of them on my website, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. That is at huntgathercook.com. You will get a 15% discount off the purchase of not only those cookbooks, but also any kind of other gear, swag, or apparel that we sell on the Hunter Angler Gardener Cook shop. You use the code HUNTGATHERTALK. That's HUNTGATHERTALK in all one word. And you will get 15% off your order of any of my cookbooks or of hoodies or shirts or stickers and that sort of thing. On the huntgathercook.com shop, you will see my cookbooks and you will see apparel and stickers and all that sort of thing. Use the code huntgathertalk and you will get 15% off. Thanks in advance for your support. The thing that scares even me, and I'm kind of a gastronaut, is I, I don't, obviously, I don't want to get sick and I don't want to get anybody else sick. So the ability to experiment with pressure canning recipes is, is, limited because you don't want to really hurt anybody so i don't even know how you would even start getting beyond a setup recipe you know when i developed a couple of recipes uh for which there i couldn't find a similar one 
I ended up going to the University of Maryland and having them professionally tested before I put them in the book. I mean, that's, that's what I felt was a responsible thing to do if I was going to really start from scratch. But if you, again, use that National Center for Home Food Preservation site as a jumping off point, and you don't mess with ratios, but only maybe change the herbs and spices, for instance, or, you know, parsnip for carrot, something like that, then I think you can have a little flexibility, but I'd be careful. That is a good thing to know that you managed to get the University of Maryland to do that because I was talking to Marissa, who lives in Philly, mm-hmm. and Marissa says that the that not only has Ball uh, stopped doing its own research for its own recipe development, but the the University of Georgia, which does this national center, mm-hmm. she says that it has been pretty much frozen as, in terms of development as well. Yeah, they, they were gutted a few years back. And I don't even know if Maryland still does it. I happen to have been on a a panel with a professor from there like five years before I wrote the book. And it was only because I knew him and had his office phone number, I think, that I was able to get through. And it did, there was expense associated with that. Sure. I mean, you you know, it's basically test this and it's, (laughs) so I just- I'm fascinated by the idea, like, because you know, there's somebody listening, including me, uh, who are like, all right, so how, what are you testing for? I guess you're testing for pathogens. I guess you're testing for uh, um, density, acidity. I, density is a really important one. Like, okay. uh, I couldn't get a butternut squash recipe, soup recipe through at all, it, no matter what I did with ratios and. Uh, water and everything else. There was nothing that could make it safe. That is the white whale of of canning is mm-hmm. uh, our winter squash. Correct. How they do it in the supermarket? It must be some special canner that is, you know. Right. Do you know? And, do you know how they do it? I, you know, I don't. I only know that there is a substantial difference between trying to do this as a home cook and having the equipment as a commercial soup manufacturer, you know? Yeah, because you can buy canned pumpkin, but it's got to be some kind of like super muscular mega canner. Yeah, something. Squash. It's I get crazy. asked this every fall. I get asked about squash. Me too. The only thing I, that I've been <laughs> able to do that has worked is to take a like a butternut or some firm squash and and dice it about the size of your thumbnail and then pickle that with yes. a heavy vinegar. That works. Yeah. Yeah. But then again, you're, you know, you're adding an enormous amount of acidity. Right. And I just keep my squash in the basement and they're good through February. And I'll also grow that. them again this summer. <laughs> also that, I mean, I grow, I grow desert varieties, which uh, are very low moisture and I've had them go all the way to June. Yeah. They get a, they get a little punky after about the spring though. Yes. There's something about, like the vegetables know that spring is coming and they say, I've got all these seeds inside me. Don't you want these? You know, have you ever noticed that, that if you have these old squash, the seeds seem to be wandering towards the, sh- the, the rind of the, they like travel yeah. through the center. Absolutely. And I also noticed that at this time of year, all of my onions sprout in the center. I mean, there's just nothing you can do. It is yep. what's happening. Mm-hmm. It's really, that's really, that's a, fascinating one because I grow a lot of onions and I grow storage onions and uh, I I mean because I eat I don't know 
many hundreds of onions every year. And I have a fridge at set at like 50 degrees. It's kind of like a beer fridge, mm-hmm. hanging hanging birds fridge, so so on. But I'll put those onions in there in mesh bags and it's dark and it's cool. For whatever reason, they still know that the lights, the days are getting longer. That's right. I mean, you've got a perfect setup for them to last forever. And no, they say, sorry, time for me to grow. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we're in the we're in the midst of uh, a month of horrendous rain and windstorms. So I've yeah. not been able to put my my onions and or garlic in the ground yet. And it's getting late. Mm-hmm. That brings me to garlic. Um, I have a phenomenal recipe from a chef named Paul Varant uh, for it, it's a preserved garlic that's pressure canned and it's a recipe mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Garlic it's basically seems to, a confit, right? It is. In it oil. is. Yeah. yeah. With, with some mm-hmm. acidity to it too. I yeah. believe it's champagne vinegar or red wine vinegar or something that goes in there as well. But it, yeah, it's, it's the greatest thing in the world. Uh, I've made, you know, many, many, many half pints of it because it's this thing that you put in other things. Yes. It's very useful. Mm-hmm. Have you, I mean, I don't know if you've done that particular recipe, but do you pressure can garlic I, as well? I have made that recipe. I don't usually pressure can it because I, I tend to just use what I've got fresh, you know, uh, but along those lines of ingredients that are good for other ingredients, I, for, I make this chili starter, I call it. And it's like, corn and onions and peppers and black beans all together so that that just gets poured into whatever I'm making for chili. So I like to have some um, pantry items like Rotel tomatoes, you know, tomatoes Mm. and chilies in them. Those you have to pressure can, and it's really fun to have. What are the leaners? The, the, there are certain leaners that some people pressure can, some people, some people water bath can, and the one that springs to mind are tomatillos. Ah, uh, yes. I, I always uh, pressure can tomatillos. I, I don't want them with a lot of acid. They ha- they're so sparkly anyway. You know, if I start adding vinegar or lemon juice, I feel like it changes their character. So it kind of depends I, on the tomatillo. I mean, I've had tomatillos and I, I use the pH strips that are super acidic all by themselves. Yeah, I guess I just mean the the way they taste to me as opposed to the pH of them. Mm. I don't really want to add more um, tartness to the tomatilla. I, w- I want true tomatilla flavor. So I pressure can them in water. I uh, typically, because of the way I cook, I do a lot of Mexican cooking. Mm-hmm. I almost never need tomatillos. I need tomatillos that are, are have been, you know, charred or pureed or whatever. So I yeah. will typically, like, I, as you, as anybody who has ever grown tomatillos, well, hey, number one, side note, you have to grow at least two tomatillos, by the way. Otherwise, you're never going to get any tomatillos. They're, uh, you need multiple plants. Yes. The second is if you do have multiple plants, you're probably going to have more tomatillos than you know what to do with. So I will tend to either broil them or what I do is I, uh, you know, in California, I, I make a mesquite fire or a, or a fruit wood fire mm-hmm. and then fire roast them all and yeah. then puree them and, and then add some salt. So they taste good. And then pressure can those in pints. And those are, those are a lifesaver. I mean, I use, I can't, 
I mean, I don't know how many gallons I use all the time because, you know, if it's, if you don't have fresh tomatillos in the summertime, this is arguably as good, if not better. Yes. Yeah. I love having them on the, on the shelf. It's just a great addition. It means that I can just whip up enchiladas so fast, you know? I know. For me, it's the, uh, it's a a salsa verde, you know, uh, whether Mm -hmm. it's a salsa for, for chips or for chili verde or whatever. I also have pressure canned uh, roasted hatch chilies. Ah, see, you get so many interesting things out there in California. (laughs) (laughs) And I have found that pressure canning peppers is interesting in the sense that it's great to have some peppers on the shelf that are ready to rock, but the pressure canning process makes them soft. So you typically, that product, you know, a pressure can roasted bell pepper or pressure canned hatch chili is going to, it's going to have to probably be pureed or, or or served in a way where it's not like sitting there on a plate where where you want it exactly Uh, it's very again it's it's the difference between commercial and home preservation when it comes to things like roasted red peppers i I mean you see them on the shelf and they're meaty and firm and then you make them at home and they're just not as firm but there's they still retain all their lovely flavor and can be used in much the same way do you have any idea of why that is? Are the, what are they adding something in the commercial process? Um, I think that they can do it faster, but I'm not positive. That's my guess: is that it, it doesn't. They don't have to pressure can as long, and so it doesn't break apart. That intuitively makes sense because if you think about the commercial freezing versus home freezing, the faster right. you freeze something, the smaller the ice particles are in the in the thing and so when it thaws the less moisture it bleeds out so maybe it's yes. a so, similar process well and think about how much water there is in the cells of a pepper so if that water starts boiling at 241 degrees that's you know changes the texture of your pepper for sure so you've so you've talked about stock to some extent your soups um fish. Oh yeah, that's right. I wanted to talk with you about, there's a, a kind of a controversy between non-Pacific Northwest people and Pacific Northwest people. We all pressure can smoked salmon and Georgia doesn't like that for some reason. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, I don't know why they don't like it. And um, I've never done it personally but I've certainly enjoyed a lot of canned smoked fish, both commercial and home canned. I'm, I'm not sure why uh, the University of Georgia has an issue with it. But again, it could be, could have something to do about moisture levels. Density. There's not a high, there's not, oh, density, density. There you go. Because mm-hmm. it is, yeah. of course, smoked. And, and usually that means hot smoking in the Pacific Northwest, which means it's going to have less moisture and possibly is more dense. Correct. That's my guess. Hunt Gather Talk is brought to you in part by eFish. eFish delivers fresh, in season, wild, American caught day boat seafood right to your doorstep. This means that in most cases, your order is still swimming when you place it. 
The fish goes straight from the dock to you overnight. But most importantly, with eFish, you can always be sure that they put harvesters in our oceans first with every purchase. What does that mean? Small boat operators, hook and line caught fin fish, and their products are never treated with chemicals. Truly handled with care from the minute it's hooked until it arrives on your doorstep. And as a 1% for the planet company, they work to ensure that our oceans will continue to thrive for generations to come. I have received e-fish shipments myself, and I can tell you that they always arrive in top-notch condition, ice cold, even from all the way across the country. So if you want access to Harvester Direct in-season seafood that is always fresh and never frozen, check out efish.com. That is e-fish.com. You get $15 off your first order with my code HuntGatherTalk. That is HuntGatherTalk, all one word. Again, You'll find all of this at e-fish.com. Do you know if there are any sources of pressure canning formulas, which is probably a better thing to use in a recipe, uh, that are available from other countries that have done testing? Because if if the University of Georgia and Ball are no longer continuing to do testing, is there somebody else out there that we can look for? Pressure canning... Um, from my experience in, and this is strictly in European countries. I mean, I don't really have canning contacts outside of Europe. Um, they don't pressure can, they just boiling water bath everything, you know, in France, the South where Kate Hill is, they mm-hmm. put an entire cassoulet into a, uh, a quart or a half gallon jar and boiling water bath that thing and put it on the shelf. Okay. Yeah, you know, and I, I've eaten it. I haven't died, um, and they and they all say that we're just too cautious. It's so American the way you worry about these things. So, you know, there's there a go. piece of that. There's definitely a piece of that. I, I do you yeah. have that? There's a book that I think most of us who are kind of extreme canners have. It's this collection of preservation recipes from Europe. And I can't, I don't have it in front of me, but it's, it's, it's a little paperback book and it's, there's some wild, wild stuff in there. Like, Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember like some of it, but it's like, oh, it, it's, it's along the lines of like, yeah, I'm going to make, um, you know, I'm going to water bath can, or maybe even not water bath can some meat. <laughs> yeah. or I'm going to put it in the jar with some hot liquid over it. And then I'm going to turn the jar upside down and then it'll be fine. Yeah. I still get that. I get that in the United States all the time. Yeah. People are like, yeah, that's that's how you do it. And people, you know, I always say, and, and is your mother Italian? Is your grandmother French? I mean, that's, it is the way things are done. And there was a book that came out, Camilla Wynn last year called Jam Bake, which got, like a lot of attention and she's very into oven um, sealing her jars. And I mean, things that when I was writing the book, people, you know, the lawyers at Norton were like, wait a minute, are you sure this is safe? And we have to put some uh, language in the front that says we're not responsible. It's a little looser now than it was even 13 years ago. Huh? I wonder why. I mean, I wonder what's, gone on i don't know 
it's it's interesting to me though i think marissa would probably say the same yeah i mean i think that between the three of us we all have like you said before we all have kind of our own rules that like yeah i'll do that but i'm not necessarily gonna i can't endorse it with somebody because correct <laughs> yeah i think the biggest one that i get um is meat is you mm -hmm. will see especially in the north country you know and by that means the northern tier of american states canada and alaska the pro the 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 practice of water bath canning meat is a thing and yes you know again they're they have experience they people have been doing it for generations and typically they don't die but right I would love to know. I would look because it's a it's a debate. It's a real debate where, okay, you know, this community has been doing this this way for two hundred years, and either nobody dies or like one guy died once and they weren't sure it was from the the jar, versus oh no, you have to pressure can it for two and a half hours or whatever. And right, like who's right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You know, when you're in a position where your book, you know, makes you into an authority of some sort, then there's a responsibility there to to read the science and read what is current and read what you're supposed to do. And then, you know, let your readers do what they need to do. And, you know, if they believe that their grandmother's way of doing this was the right way, I, I can't. I can't fight it. I don't know that I want to fight it, but it's, <laughs> I, I kind of want to know. I mean, why is there nobody out there who, especially Canadian scientists, like, yeah, everybody in Newfoundland jars moose in a water bath canning and mm -hmm. they don't seem to be dying in droves. What's going on here? Yeah. And, and then, you know, by the same token, my college roommate's um, grandfather made sauprasada, which he called super sausage, by the way and hung it in the <laughs> attic, you know, and it hung in the attic in Pittsburgh, which, you know, can get hot, but that's where it was. Nobody died. He could be, I mean, my first thought is that it's like a country <laughs> ham and a country ham salt content can be up to 5%, which right. is so salty that you can't, you can't really sit there and eat it. Yeah. That'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> Because, I, you know, maybe maybe it is one of those things. Maybe that jarred mousse, and I've never eaten it, maybe that jarred mousse has so much salt in it that it's it's helping people out somehow. Yes. I don't it know. It could be. Or it could be that they keep it somewhere where it's actually quite cold. You know? That's true. That's true. I mean, that's the thing. When I learn how to make confit the real way. Mm-hmm. You know they they don't can it at all. They they'll they'll keep it in the on the bone, surrounded by completely surrounded by um, duck fat in a crock in a ceramic or, crock. Yeah, yeah. And but they'll keep it in the basement where it's cold, right? And and even then they don't eat it past like April of the next year. I mean it's typically a thing that you do in the harvest time and in the fall, and they eat off it all all winter, and then it's gone right. by Mayish. You know. Mm -hmm. But that's the thing. It's yeah. like, what's what's your room temperature? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Is it is it fifty five? Like you know, I know some people in New England and Canada will keep their their house at, in the high fifties in the winter time, or is it seventy five? Right. Yeah, and I know, like my basement gets really hot in the summer. I can't keep anything down there then. 
Really? But all winter, it's great. Yeah. Just the way just, that it, the house is built and not, I don't know what it is. It's really gets like hot, humid, you know, way too moist for anything safe. Is there the a, is there a time limit on pressure canned goods or, or will they last to the second coming? They will last in terms of being edible, but I don't think that they will last in terms of flavor. I think your, you know, your peak time is the first year. The second year is okay. By year three, things get pretty dull and the color will go. Like my tomato soup starts out kind of brick red and then it gets a little darker. And by year three, it's kind of like almost black. Not, mm. I don't want to eat that. And that's just from that little bit of air. There's still temperature fluctuations. and Yes. Do you store all your pressure can things with a rim off? Yes, always. Everything that I can, I take off the, the rim, leave the lid. Is that because I don't, I generally don't do that. Um, but it's recommended because if there are gases or issues with what's in the jar, the top will lift off and you'll know instantly that that is no longer edible. Generally, I think the way I get around that and haven't killed myself is uh, when I'm taking something off the shelf, I will take the rim off or the rim off, and then I mm -hmm. will pick up the whole jar by the edges of the lid. Yes. And if the, if the the lid falls off, I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> that yeah, one's exactly. <laughs> and that has well, happened. I, I had I had a very exciting experience with some pickles. Um, I it was. I just was married it's probably 25 years ago. And you need to know that my husband like really hates pickles. They are the devil's food as far as he's concerned. And I canned six quarts of beautiful pickles with garlic and dill and all kinds of other stuff in them. And I put them in the garage to cure and something happened. And the, the, it, the pickles wanted to leave the jar. Let me put it that way. And they still had the rims on. And so the jars blew up and wow. I spent, I spent a lot of time <laughs> cleaning the, um, the garage. And so I think that cured me. Wow. I, I, I can't yeah. even imagine what would have gone like they were, they were vinegar pickles. Oh, yeah. I didn't cut the blossom end off, which um, it can be a problem. Apparently, how mm -hmm. <laughs> to make I'm a Molotov you, cocktail out of a, out of a my my husband came from the garage. He's like, "What the hell happened in there? It smells terrible." <laughs> have you had any had any real disasters with pressure canning? Like you go you go you go check on something about a you know six months later, and like, holy crap! You know the worst things that have happened have been during the pressure canning itself. Like have the sound of a jar breaking inside the canner is a really terrible feeling, especially if you've got something expensive like duck or tuna going. Um, yeah. And jars just get fatigued after a while. And I reuse mine and I don't know, you know, one from the next, I don't know what's new, but they will get fatigued and the bottom will just come right off. So you open up the canner and you lift the jar and all the food and everything slips out into the water and, that's a really sad moment.
Uh, yeah, I've, I've had that one. The <laughs> other one I get, uh, I got during the pandemic was because nobody could get lids, remember? And yes. So you go on Amazon and like, it's a genuine ball lid and that's actually made in China somewhere. And oh, those are terrible. Terrible, terrible. Like I threw them out because I did a batch of spaghetti sauce and mm-hmm. I had those cheap ass lids and because, you know, you're pressure canning and that's much more. Yeah fierce than water bath canning and i opened up the the pressure canner and lo and behold every one of the jar lids had either blown completely or oh. was bowed out you know like a, oh, like a hub no oh my god every single one except for the oh no i remember i had one last ball lid and like that one's fine <laughs> naturally oh that's a that's a sick feeling right there isn't it Oh, it was terrible. It was terrible. At least mm-hmm. the jar didn't break, so I could actually eat the spaghetti sauce. But right, you know, and I'm a kind of guy. If I've got spaghetti sauce in the in the fridge, it's uh, ten days is fine for me. I'll be I'll be okay. Uh, yeah, but I probably have a, a robust intestinal flora. As I said, personal rules, and then what you write down. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one thing that happens to me with a little bit of frequency, and maybe you can, ex- I'm probably just filling the jars too much, is I will pressure can something and all the lids will be fine. You know, I mean, I can take the rims off, pick them up by the jar, by, by the lids mm-hmm. and they're all held, but there's a little bit of a, a aroma and B a little bit of color in the water in the pressure canner. So that's, I'm presuming like the, in the process, while they were, while they were doing their thing, there was some like flushing that happened. It's called siphoning. Mm. And um, there are a couple of things a couple of reasons it happens. Sometimes it's when the initial temperature spikes too quickly. Like when you're trying to build your pressure up, if you do that too fast, the um, goods inside the jar can start to boil too fast and they just pop out under the lid a little bit. It also happens if the pressure canner is depressurized too quickly. So I always recommend that you just turn the canner off and walk away for a few hours. Just leave everything in the canner. There's no rush to get it out. And once it's really cool, then you move it out of the canner because jostling the jars at all when they're that hot can often um, cause more siphoning. Yep. Yep. That is a great tip that I'm glad we remember to say on the air Um, (laughs) because that's, that's the one thing that I've discovered is that it's kind of like that natural release versus the pressurized release in a pressure cooker. Uh, Correct. I, I can't tell you how important that is in my experience. So, I'll, yeah. uh, so I'm going to be pressure canning some stock at, when we get off this call. And then I will monitor it and through it till it's done. And then I will turn the burner off. And then I'm going to go out and do errands. Yes, Exactly. You can. It's a very common occurrence, the siphoning, and it makes yeah. people crazy, you know. And often, like, I, it happens to me all the time. And I pull out all of the tomatoes that I've canned. I'll have, you know, eight quarts or whatever. And one of them will just be down two inches because it decided to siphon. It happens. Okay. Okay. So I'm not crazy because it happens to me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just use that one first. Okay. The, that brings up to another question of, okay, there's a lot of things that we pressure can that are not full. Like fish is a good example where, you know, the, there could be three inches of headspace in the can. Is that okay? Mm, no, I, I want you to always have your headspace be consistent. 
That means that you just have to add more oil or more water or more stock or whatever it is. And um, if you have four and a half pints, make four, put the half pint in the refrigerator and eat it first. Mm, Okay. So what's, uh, you know, generally speaking, it's an inch for water bath canning. Um, It's a, it's a quarter or a half. I mean, it really is dependent on the recipe. And here's again, where you get to that um, uh, science and density and safety issue because different densities require different headspace. And that's, I mean, my book has headspace for all of the different types of foods. Um, If it's very liquidy, like stock, uh, you can have a half inch headspace. If it's dense, like spaghetti sauce, you probably need an inch. So that sort of thing. Like jams, you only need a quarter of an inch. Right. Jams don't kind of do do much. Right. What happens if you pressure can something like a pickle or, or, or jam? Well, if you do a pickle, it'll just destroy the um, integrity of that pickle. Trust me. I mean, just all the cell structure will be gone. You'll just have mush. Don't, don't do that to your pickles. It's not nice. Um, and jams, I, I, if, you, if you were to pressure can them, they're just too hot. And you lose a lot of that fresh fruit flavor. And, you know, a really good jam should taste like you just bit into that strawberry or, you know, that you have peach juice running down your neck. And um, if you cook it at that super high temperature, you get a very different product. Other than, you know, strict preservation prepper, you have a giant garden and blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of sort of mechanical mundane reasons to pressure can things. What are your favorite things to pressure can that are improved by the pressure canning process? So we mentioned a little bit about the duck confit. And -hmm. there's one of the things I talked about with Marissa in the small batch canning episode was in small batch canning, you can do a great like condiments or delicacies or fillets in the like the the pulverance garlic is an example of that. So what are some of the, you know, if you pressure can this you're going to have something that you can't buy, or if you can buy, it's really expensive, that is improved by this process. Smoked oysters. They're really good pressure canned. Interesting. Yeah, really good. Like, I just love smoked oysters on anything, and they're delicious because they take on the same kind of quality as fish. You know, they get silky, good oil. You can put some uh, herbs in there. It's, It's delicious. So, yeah. Smoked oysters um, improved by it. Well, I mean, I think that in some ways, pressure canning your tomato products like sauce, puree, um, passata, the rotel tomatoes, um, because you pressure can at a high temperature for less time, they can taste fresher than the jars of tomatoes that I can using the boiling water method. Hmm. I think I've stumbled upon that because I'm super lazy. And if I have seven quarts of tomato sauce, I mean, I'm just talking tomatoes and not with meat. And yeah. I don't really feel like filling up a gigantic canner that much full of water. So right. I'll, <laughs> I'll pressure can them in a lot less water. I mean, I live in a desert for crying out loud and, yeah. and they turn out perfectly good. Yeah. Yeah, I often pressure can, you know, ferment, 
for a lot of the time, it just depends which canner's on the stove. You know, what have I brought up from the basement most recently? So if that pressure canner's there, I'm not going to go get the other one. I'm going to pressure can it. That's a good idea. That's a, I mean, I, I live in a, a ranch house, so we don't have basements, but, but uh, yeah. I actually don't, I actually don't have a dedicated water bath canner. I'll either use a stock pot and a, a mm-hmm. little rack on the bottom or, or I'll just use the pressure canner. Yes. I, I use my pressure canner for a lot of the things that I can. Um, I do have a, I have an electric canner that I got during the point where I was writing this book and it's kind of nice to use because you just put it right next to the sink, fill it up with water and plug it in. Huh. Pretty easy. I didn't even know that existed. Yeah. Are there any kind of new new things coming out with pressure canning or really canning in general? Like, is anybody pushing boundaries? Is anybody doing new and interesting, innovative things that you've heard of that that maybe we haven't over here? That because I'm always fascinated by who's who's doing the cool new stuff. Yeah, I would say that um, in the canning space, it's more uh, chutneys, jams, you know, sort of basic boiling water products that I see coming out in new books and um, rather than the pressure canning. Pressure canning is very sciencey. It's, it's expansive, but it's also limited at the same time. You know, you can take care of a lot of things, but some things you can't. And it, it's, um, it's a little expensive to get into the cost of the equipment. So I don't see a lot of people leaping into it. Hmm. I, I, I think actually, it's a shame. I think that it's really the most useful kind of preserving I can do. No. I don't know about you, most useful, but it, it sure is useful. And I think the the inability to for us as humans to do to test recipes safely, you know, like you have to have a lab. I think that's yeah. a huge, huge limiting point. And I was hoping that, you know, the fancy chefs of the world, you know, the Rene Redzepes or the Magnus Nilsons and such would, yes. would because they, they can afford to do that. Yeah. They can afford to do the testing and, and I don't see a lot of it. No, I had those same thoughts. Like who's out there. Can't you help, help a girl out? <laughs> I know. I mean, we need to, we need to sort of, we should, we should do a national GoFundMe for like Maryland or Georgia or someone to like, no, right. do new stuff. Absolutely. Um, I, I think, and it's a shame that the extension offices have closed up. There's, I mean, there's only, as far as I know, only one program um, being offered right now in master preserving, maybe two. Mm. Um, and I thought there would be a kind of groundswell back 15 years ago. And there was, but it wasn't big enough to uh, get the extension offices going again, get the preserving programs going. It was just a blip, which is unfortunate. It really is. It's it's actually the thing that is, as I'm doing this episode and recording more and more um, episodes in this season of preservation, I am. This is seems to be the biggest black hole of current research of all of the varieties of preservation that you can do. This one is there's it's kind of a dead zone. Right. Absolutely. And I, I don't exactly know why. Well, it's a shame to finish this up on a down note, but hell. <laughs> yeah, let's not be down. Let's be up. Let's like go can some albacore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm actually, I am 100% going to pick your book up because I'm looking at it right now and get that duck confit recipe and start playing with it. 
What's uh? How does somebody find find you on the internet and social media? And tell us the names of your books again. Sure, I am everywhere as Kathy Barrow. Uh, that's Kathy with a C B A R R O W. My books are Mrs. Wheelbarrow's Practical Pantry, Pie Squared, which is a collection of sweet and savory slab pies, When Pies Fly, and those are hand pies and other pie adjacent foods from around the world. Really? And- oh my God. I don't even know you had that book. I'm buying it tomorrow because <laughs> I am I am an absolute sucker for hand pies. It's super fun. I love that book. Um, it's just, you know, all about pies. Um, and uh, bagel schmears on a nice piece of fish, which came out in March of last year. My pandemic baby. I uh, Mine was uh, Hook, Line and Supper, my, uh, my fish yep. and seafood book. <laughs> That's great. You know, great so, titles. I appreciate that. Some of them are mine and some of them are, uh, we, uh, I will crowdsource this. Uh, a guy up in upstate New York came up with uh, Hook, Line, and Supper. So I gave him credit and the acknowledgments and That's sent him awesome. a bunch of free books. <laughs> <laughs> great. So you do you do much social media? Oh, yeah. I'm all over Instagram. Gotcha. I still pl- play around on Twitter, even though it's, I know it's dying, but I, it's where I started. So I, I still want it to be like it used to be. Um, and I, less and less on Facebook. So Me too. Instagram. Me too. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not I'm, TikToking. I'm not TikToking. Me neither. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> I always I say think, I don't dance. So I think both of us are a generation too old for, uh, for TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what's next, but I'm probably not going to be there. It'll no doubt be something like in you know, a chip inserted in the side of our brain or some stuff like that. Yes. <laughs> Why? You mean you don't have a chip in your head? What's the matter with you? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, Kathy Barrow, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, really I, nice talking to you, Hank. It's quite a while. It's a pleasure. A hundred percent going to go do that, that canned duck comfy and, and buy your, your flying pie book. Um, because that's, I'm, just jazz about that. I, I've always thought about like, we need to have a book that's just about like, you know, pasties and hand pies and da da da. And like, Oh, guess you wrote one. And I did. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you again. It's really been fun and happy new year to you. To you too. Well, that is our show this week. Thank you so much for spending a part of your day with us. I am your host, Hank Shaw. We are sponsored by Filson and eFish and Forage Market. Go out there, preserve something, get over your fear of pressure cannings, go get a pressure canner and start making your life a little bit easier with stuff that you made, not stuff that some big giant corporation made. Again, I'm Hank. Talk to you soon. Take it easy. (laughs) 